Welcome, dear friends, another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich, the podcast that celebrates conversation, creative conversation with people who have a lot to say. Very excited to welcome a dear friend of mine who's respected and admired everywhere as one of the world's leading statisticians. He's Professor Emeritus of Statistics at Harvard University, Dr. Donald Rubin. Don has worked and taught all over the world, and he's most known for something called Rubin's Causal Model. And we'll talk about that with the professor and the fact that it enhanced statistical research around the globe. Now, statistically, what are the chances that a guy like me hangs out with a guy like Don Rubin on a regular basis? I can't begin to compute it. All I know is he's a dear friend and a fascinating guy. So let's welcome the stat king, Professor Donald Rubin, as he now steps up and joins us on mic. Well, I've got one of the most renowned statisticians in the world here. And uh, before we start, I've got a joke for you. These two statisticians walk into a bar. What are the chances? No. That's no. it. <laughs> I, I hope the other jokes get better. Have you heard the jokes? Are there jokes that float around in the field of statistics? There, there were, but I don't remember them. Anyway, it's great to uh, have you here. You and I are good friends off air, but I've always wanted to chat with you about the work that you do. And first of all, statistics, but not always. You did some work in psychology too, correct? Right. And, and also outside, because as an undergraduate, I was more into uh, uh, actually physics originally. And, and then I, I, I went into uh, psychology. So you dabbled in a lot of areas. <clears throat> yep. Science, math, and so forth. Yep. Was math always your thing as a kid? Uh, well, when I was probably when I was really young, it was like like most kids who were into into uh, science. At, well, certainly back then, at, in, in those years, if you were uh, generally good at, at math and science, you you thought you were going to be a mathematician in some sense. Then you find out that, that there are people who are really good at it, and so you sort of give up. <laughs> But let's talk a little bit about what statistics are and, and why they're important. I took a one course in college, and the only thing I remember, and I wrote it down, was descriptive and inferential. Am I right about that? Yep. Okay. So what's the difference? Uh, descriptive means just, uh, as, as the word says, describing what's going on. So there are things like what's the relationship between height and weight, uh, you know, how correlated, how much do people weigh who are over this overweight, I mean, not how much they weigh, but uh, how tall are they or things like that. So it's data that is set. It's firm, pretty well, much. It's, it, well, the questions are, are, are firm. They're, they're, they're not mm. very um, difficult to pose. Uh, inferential statistics more has to do with things like e experiments when you're trying to figure out um, how much better one drug is from another drug. You're inferring based on the right. data and the, and the information gathered. And you just said um, drugs and medicine and all that. But statistics are used in so many parts of our lives, weather, sports, traffic, right? I mean, there's right. all kinds of applications. So what is a statistician doing with the training that one has in this field these days? That's an interesting question because I think that the training that, that has evolved over the uh, recent years it's actually changed from the way it was when I was a kid. So when I was a kid, is probably well. Right now, there's more emphasis on uh, computer science and algorithms, how you do something quickly using machines. Let me take a sidebar for a second. Sure. The fact that everything is available at our fingertips does that have something to do with the math scores being in the dumper in America? Do you think the fact that no one even knows how to do basic math? I think that's probably exaggerated. I think the sort of the pop culture idea of that. I think people who were there still are, are are plenty of people who are really good at thinking hard about you know, about problems, but just that I think it's probably the the advent of, of fast computing has relieved the burden, and so you don't have to teach people how to do 
mechanical mathematics anymore. I guess the only time it really comes into play is when you're trying to get change from a, somebody behind the counter and they can't figure it out. Yeah, and but, but most people have good intuition about that. If if, it, if it's simple, you know, money matters. They, Look at you having faith in the human race. I love that. <laughs> yeah, That's I great. Do. Let's talk a little bit about something that you are known for. You actually have the Ruben Causal model. And when I found out, and I've known you for a while, when I found out that somebody named something after you, uh, I have had a sandwich named after me. That's about <laughs> right. as far as it got. Well, I did have something else named after me that's almost, well, probably as important, which was at a Chinese restaurant in Cambridge where I used to go as a graduate student. They named a, a dish after me. You have more pride in that or as much? Yes. <laughs> of course you Because the owner of the Chinese restaurant was, was a very nice guy and it was named after uh, actually me because I was there with a graduate student who was kosher. And the dish had pork in it, and we asked him whether he could make it with chicken instead of pork. And it was very good, so he put it on the menu, and he called it the Reuben. The Reuben. Yeah, somehow that name sounds familiar on menus, but it's different, yes. different Reuben altogether. A different spelling. A different spelling. So what, what is the, the model, what, if you can explain it to the lay people? It's a very simple model that actually was intuitively around probably for thousands of years. In fact, it has to be around for thousands of years. It's it's just a, but I, I formalized the definition using uh, mathematical notation and sort of caught on for a, a paper that I wrote in 1974. And I talked about causality in, in terms of comparing two quantities, which I called potential outcomes, because you could never see both. And what I used as an example of that is you, you have a headache right now, and you're trying to decide whether to take aspirin to make the headache go away. And so what you're thinking about is what, the, for example, is what the condition of my headache will be like in an hour if I take the aspirin or if I don't take the aspirin. So the causal effect of taking the aspirin, the actual causal effect, is something you can never see, you can never actually observe. Because it, it's, the impar- it's the comparison of what your headache's like in two hours or an hour if you take the aspirin, what your headache's like in two hours if you don't take the aspirin. Future <clears throat> yep. scanning, in a sense. It's playing with the time continuum a bit. Yep. And there's a formula, there's a model for this now. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, yeah. the idea is that you actually have uh, formal notation for it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you can actually it, – it's, e- it's often easier to do things when you have formal notation than just trying to uh, – Use intuition. And so this is a great way of, of formalizing that. You're intuition. one of the most, and I mean this sincerely, one of the most respected men in the field when it comes to this academically and around the world. You lecture everywhere. Has the field been tweaked and and politically maneuvered as some fields seem to have been? Or is math, math, and statistics don't lie? I think math is math, but, but statistics, uh, because it, re- it relies more on formulation of ideas, and, and then mathematically representing them, probably is more subject to that. But I mm-hmm. think it's, it's still pretty clean. Well, what's the difference, if there is any, between, say, polling and, and statistical research? Because everyone hears the term poll, right. this, right. poll, that. Well, uh, in, in polling, the objective is, is pretty clear in the sense that you, you could, at least in principle, ask everybody in the, in the universe of people the question, and then you just calculate the answer. Mm-hmm. And the idea of polling is well, that's too expensive. You know, it's too, we can't go ask everybody in the United States who you voted for right. or who you want to vote for. Instead, you take samples, so subsamples of, of of people, and then you infer the answer. That's where the inference part com- comes in. That's a form of statistical research, is it not? Uh, yes. That's the inference idea. Yeah. Gotcha. Were you a sports fan growing up? And the reason I asked that question is when I 
was a kid, I had baseball cards, and the most important thing was the statistics on the cards. I had to know who led with RBIs, who led with homers, strikeouts. And a lot of kids, at least then, did it. Maybe they still do. Was that something that intrigued you? Yeah, it, it did. Actually, I, I probably wasn't as intrigued by it as some people, but I, but I certainly was, was more, than, more than other kids. So I like that kind of information. Because if nothing else, kids are are interested and fascinated and can quote you chapter and verse. And I always think that's a great thing. It shows that these kids are curious and they also understand the conceptual notion of statistics. Yeah, and in fact, some of my former uh, colleagues and, and, and PhD students actually do statistics for uh, major major professional sports teams. Mm. There's one guy who's actually a, a friend of um, the basketball player, uh, Elijah Wan. Because he he, he he lived in in, in Houston, and he got yeah. involved in, in consulting for the team. Because all when they when they uh, guess uh, draft people, for example, it's a, it's a big deal. Let's talk about some of the things that you've applied your work. You, you've been teaching for years and helping people and and writing papers, but you've worked for industry and you've worked for businesses and tried to help organizations. Right. What would be an example? <clears throat> Pharmaceutical industry when when because the process of approving drugs is. Uh, Regimented. I mean, it's really very much controlled. And so you get involved in helping design preliminary experiments through negotiation with the FD, Food and Drug Administration. Mm-hmm. And then when you, actually you get data, phase one, phase two, phase three, there are different, different subgroups of those phases before a, a drug get, gets approved. And the, the approval process, for example, is similar, very similar in the U.S. and the uh, EU. But there are differences. And so to get, I get involved. I had gotten involved at least in, in, in the past uh, with particular problems, especially ones where there are complications. Your kind of work does cross international boundaries, doesn't it? Yeah, it yeah, does. Because you do a lot of traveling. But also it makes sense if drugs are distributed throughout Europe or Asia, they have an impact here ultimately and vice versa. Correct. So that makes sense. You also occasionally have worked for more controversial clients, including the tobacco industry. That's correct. Now, what, pray tell, were you asked to do in that case? Well, I was originally contacted by a, uh, a guy, um, a lawyer in D.C. named Peter Bierstecker, who worked for a company called Jones Day. And they were involved in, in the early days of the tobacco litigation, probably in the maybe early, late 50s or mm-hmm early 60s. And there were two problems that they were dealing with, two issues where they wanted my advice, at least. And one was causal inference, because you, you know, the usual way of doing causal inference without constraints is to do randomized experiments. But there are no randomized experiments where you randomly assign people to smoke at 16 and smoke for 50 years and other people to not smoke at 16 and then follow them up. So you can't do a randomized mm. experiment. They have done randomized experiments with with mice and, and rabbits and other stuff. Yeah, but you, you can't subject humans to that kind you of thing. You can't. That's right. Obviously. And, and it turns out with animals, uh, none of them get lung cancer. How long a project was that? Just curious. I probably was involved with them for five or six years. And do you recall the findings and were you surprised or was anybody surprised or satisfied or what? Well, one of the things that was interesting to me is because there had been hundreds, maybe thousands of, of studies done on uh, – smoking and lung cancer. Some of them actually are randomized experiments that they tried, tried doing, which you don't, you don't expect uh, people to develop lung cancer within, the, uh, within two or three years, but you do find what effect interventions to curtail smoking actually have on smoking behavior. 
So if you give them like, interventions to be, be more warned about the health risks of smoking and the, and the dangers, which there's, there's no doubt there are, do they take the advice? Interesting. Did you get any blowback from friends or colleagues because you were working in the tobacco world? Not blowback from friends or colleagues. I, I got sort of concerned because you're killing your career. Really? Yeah, because it's because some of these guys you were, would collect literally millions of dollars in grants from NIH, National Institutes of Health, National Cancer Institute, in which their career was based. They paid their academic salaries in sure, medical schools. Sure. And they said, well, do, do you know the fact that these programs to curtail smoking really have essentially no effect on smoking behavior? Mm. said, yeah, I know it, but it's my source of money. Follow the money in almost every yeah, profession. So, so my, I, because I came from a family of lawyers, I, I said, I sort of, my attitude was different. <laughs> if it's a legal product, why is it still legal if it's so bad? Well, I come back to the issue that this is a universal language, statistics. I mean, whether you talk about them in English, French, or Chinese, and I want to get to the Chinese sure. situation because you do a lot of work educating those in China. It's it's the universal language. It's the language that we might communicate with literally aliens from other planets. So it should make sense that it's internationally accepted. And there's a certain standard that is involved as opposed to more subjective studies. I think that's right. I yeah. think that, uh, but, you, but you do find um, subjective attitudes interfering with that to some extent. Talk about China because you've done trips there before the COVID thing and you've now done a lot of remote education and so forth. Right. What are they looking for? What are they interested in? What are they fascinated by? Well, I think uh, generally there's, there's a realization in, in China that there's a tremendous amount of talent because there's a tremendous number of people. Mm. And so, you know, it's what, uh, two and a half billion or something like that, Chinese. There are a lot of smart people. Uh, but their education system has tended to be very rigid, very oriented towards um, memorization and not sort of flexible thinking. And so the, the, uh, the Chinese academics whom I know uh, realize that and they tend to be uh, encouraging of more free thinking, more creative thinking. And that's where statistics, the way it's taught here, comes into play. It is Correct. it is something that promotes cognitive thinking and really maybe even thinking out of the box. That's right, because it, it's, it's it's more scientific thinking, thinking not not just mathematical thinking. Yeah. What does it mean when you have a statistical platform for a, a corporation in this country? Why is it so important these days to have that kind of market research, if you will? Well, there's a fortune made on 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 market uh, research, uh, especially with the internet now. And and I've done a, some little bit of recent uh, consulting on, on internet projects where they, they everything is sold, not everything, but so many things are sold by the internet now. You know, and, and you don't have to have face-to-face -face contact. More challenging to gather data or easier because there are clicks involved? Both. It's, it's, it's easier because it's so easy to, to, to gather data, but it's, it's a mess because you gather so much. And there's, when somebody responds to a survey, for example, if it's an Internet survey, you really have no idea who's, who's responding. Yeah. It could be the same person responding 12 times. That's often the case. That's why uh, electronic voting is a little bit suspect and things like that. You've got to be really careful. What's the most fun project you ever worked on? I mean, fun like Disney World hired you or something. What, do you have one of those that comes to mind? Let me think. Is it, uh, not immediately. Um, I mean, I know you like to have fun. Yes, right. We always hang out together, but <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I didn't know if... Uh, actually, in some entertaining way, the tobacco thing was, 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 was fun because it, it had the immediate knee-jerk reaction, oh, you're working for the evil ones, the dark side. 
And so I, I, I like to make, make fun of it. <laughs> you know, it. For those who don't know you, you have a wry sense of humor. So you don't take things always no. at face value. Correct. So that's really interesting. What would you advise listeners who are younger thinking about getting into this field in terms of career steps and education steps? What would you advise them to do? Well, if you if you want to do something in in statistics or or the or the, or the, or the sort of the computer science fields that connect to it, it's an unbelievable uh, opportunities all over the place. Because even when I was when I was a kid, you, there were so many jobs for somebody who is a statistician. You can be, go teach theoretical statistics or mathematical statistics in an academic department. You can go teach it in a, in a medical school. You can go teach it in a business school. Mm. I want to divert just a bit before we close, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was your association at Princeton with Professor Wheeler, I believe? John Wheeler, right. And the reason I bring that up, I did a little reading recently on John Wheeler. Pretty impressive guy, Los Alamos, connected to nuclear power, nuclear research, nuclear weaponry. Obviously had connections to uh, Niels Bohr and others of some repute. Albert Einstein. So you're— Who's fairly well known. Yeah, (laughs) I get excited when I know that I know Professor Donald Rubin. Professor Donald Rubin knew the guy who knew Albert Einstein. Correct. That is pretty darn cool. In fact, there's a wonderful photograph of uh, Wheeler and, and a Japanese physicist who won the Nobel Prize many years ago. The three of them with and Albert Einstein mm. walking on on a, on a street in Princeton. Yeah. And so the, you know he was he was he was a buddy of of, of that his. that is d- d- would a professor like that who you were in a cohort would would he share stories about Einstein? Yeah. Because he, he, when I went to Princeton as a freshman, I, I, I took a physics course with, with, with Wheeler. And Wheeler was a very social guy and very modest. And he had people uh, to his house to have – I was a freshman, as, uh, which was right on a golf course called Somerset Golf Course. You don't forget Princeton. experiences no, like that, do right. you? That's no. awesome. That is really cool. Yeah, I was reading about him. He's uh, well-regarded in scientific circles and uh, involved in literally world-changing events. I mean – one more thing about education and academia. You've been involved with Harvard University. I believe you're still emeritus there, right? Correct. What's that like to be a Harvard professor all these years? Does it come with extra panache because you say, I'm a Harvard professor? or do you, do you still, something to be avoided saying. <laughs> do, you, do you still have to pay for every cup of coffee that you uh, sure, order? Sure, of okay. course. <laughs> the school is called the School of Statistics? or No, they actually, you know, Harvard, I think, has, or at least they used to have about 14 different deanships. Because, you know, Harvard is very decentralized, actually. Mm-hmm. I think it will become much more centralized uh, in the last decade or two decades. But they used to have 14 different deanships, and, and the, their endowment, although enormous, is divided among the deans. So each dean controls a different endowment, and they get to spend the money the way they and their, and their colleagues decide to spend it. Mm. So it's really um, very decentralized, used to be at least. You know what's really cool is when you meet up with and find out where your former students are and what they're doing and the respect that they have. And I'll just use one example. Uh, it wasn't a student of yours, but it was somebody who knew of you, who studied your work. This young man was so excited that he was in your company. That must make you feel pretty good. It does, but I don't remember the person. <laughs> I don't remember him either. <laughs> okay. But uh, no, I, I mean, I know you have a lot of students that you still keep in touch with. Yeah, I do. Yeah. A lot of that comes from having written joint papers and Oh, and I, I tend to be very hard critic, and I, so I, when we, we draft papers, there must be 10, 15 versions before we finally even submit it for publication. Mm-hmm. And so I, I tend to be a very hard critic of, of the writing and the thinking in, in the paper. 
one would think that all you do all day long is sit around and think of formulas and come up with statistical notions and research and plans, and you're changing the world. But you're also a well-rounded guy. You love jazz. Yes. You have you no can, ability. No ability. <laughs> but you 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 got to turn it off sometimes, right? That all that stuff going on in your brain isn't it important to turn it off? And that's, I don't know if it's important to because it's in in some sense it's a lot of it's always floating around back there. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are problems that I that don't have neat solutions. And so there's, 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 you know, back there, I mean, sometimes you wake up with, with, with a thought. Maybe I'm using the wrong terms. Maybe you ought to take time to meditate with fun stuff, music or... Oh, yeah, sure. I certainly do that. Good food or yeah, good that, company. Good, Come on. Company, food, <laughs> alcohol. Yep. All the important things yes. in life. Well, Professor Donald Rubin, Don to me and you, so nice to finally corral you, get you into the studio and chat with you about your amazing life. Just nonstop. You're going, going, going. And uh, statistically, I'd say uh, you're probably one of the most impressive academic guests I've ever had. Well, I, 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 I don't know the list, but... <laughs> it's, it's quite impressive. Take my word Good. for it. Good. And if I'm lying, who cares? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Absolutely. Professor Donald Rubin, Dr. Rubin, esteemed academician, but also a fine friend of mine who's got one heck of a sense of humor. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to everyone at Chart Productions, where we produce this and many other podcasts, audiobooks, commercials, and more. Find out more about me and what's happening at jordanrich.com. Until next time, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care. <laughs>